I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2012. Coming up, we talk to John Gertner, the author of a book on Bell Labs, the place that gave us the transistor, the laser, and the solar cell. Had to be invented, which can sound obvious today, but I mean, even the things like dial tones or hang-up hooks or um, busy signals, ringers, those were all things that had to be invented at the phone company. We begin with a look at some recent news in science. A new study is questioning the accuracy of seismic hazard maps. The maps are used by civil authorities to plan and execute hazard mitigation strategies. The magnitude 9, 2011, Tohoku earthquake occurred where only a magnitude 7 or 8 earthquake was expected. The resulting tsunami breached the primary defense, seawalls that covered a third of Japan's coastline and that were 10 meters high in places. 19,000 people were killed, and the Fukushima nuclear power plants were critically damaged. What went wrong? The problems, according to the authors, are multiple. Records of very strong earthquakes are rare because accurate instrumental seismic data has been collected for little more than 50 years. Geologic information on high-water marks, such as discovered in the Pacific Northwest related to a prehistoric earthquake in 1700, are only being recently considered. Also, seismologists have relied on theories of earthquake generation that are wrong, the physics, or the assumptions are bad. Of course, there is always bad luck, having that once-in-a-while earthquake, the black swan, happen now. But there are too many such black swans to blame on bad luck alone. Given the hazards of making hazard maps and the dire need for accurate maps, the authors advocate statistically testing them and correcting them based on those tests then it might be possible to say how confidently the maps can make predictions. On the other hand, the problem of making good enough predictions may be intractable if nonlinear physics holds sway, for example. In any event, we just may never get enough experience with these violent earth processes on geological timescales to have enough data for good statistical tests. The study was published in July of this year in the journal Tectonophysics. One of the weak links in using renewable energy is the difficulty in storing electricity produced from intermittent sources like wind or solar. This week, Bloomberg Businessweek reported on a number of promising energy storage ideas, but one on the list would be near and dear to the hearts of many Coloradans. That is, using ski lifts to store energy. Instead of shuttling skiers up a mountain, the system being developed by the startup company Energy Cash sends buckets of gravel up a hill. When the energy needs to be withdrawn from the storage banks, the gravel is sent back down. The company currently has a small 50-kilowatt prototype system running in California, but they hope to scale it up to many megawatts. Aaron Fike, the founder of Energy Cash, claims that the ski lift technology could cost 40% less than pumped hydro, the most commonly used method of grid-scale energy storage today. Lifting gravel up and down a hill may sound like a far-fetched idea, but it caught the fancy and the checkbook of Bill Gates. And now we dig into the history vaults. On this day in 1888, George Eastman was issued a landmark patent for his box camera. On the same date, he registered the trademark name Kodak. This design was the first Kodak mass-produced camera and brought photography to the mass market. As described in its advertising, the operation was simple. Pull the string, turn the key, 
press the button. And on this day in 1906, U.S. patents were issued to Robert Eugene Turner of Norfolk, Virginia, for his invention of a typewriting machine with a carriage powered by a motor to return automatically when the end of the writing line is reached, also to return same by pressing a key lever on the keyboard to return the carriage at any point of its stroke. And finally, on this day in 1951, President Harry Truman inaugurated transcontinental television service in the U.S. when AT&T carried his address to the opening session of the Japanese Peace Convention in San Francisco. The conference would formalize the end of hostilities with Japan, opening the door for Japan's economic recovery. The largest single television audience to date, estimated over, at over 30 million people, viewed President Truman, some as far away as New England. 87 stations all over the U.S. received and broadcast Truman's speech. I searched out my companions They were lost in crystal canyons When the aimless blade of science Chopped the pearly gates You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. Last week here in Colorado, Governor Hip Hickenlooper held a summit about how to foster innovation. If Colorado's thinkers didn't find enough answers at the summit, one place to look for more might be John Gertner's recent book on Bell Laboratories. Bell Labs thrived from the 1920s to the 1980s, when it was the most innovative and productive institution of the 20th century. Long before America's brightest scientific minds began migrating west to Silicon Valley, they flocked to the Bell Labs campus in the New Jersey suburbs. At its peak, Bell Labs employed nearly 15,000 people. 1,200 had PhDs. 13 eventually won Nobel Prizes. How did they do it? How can we learn from their successes so we can do it here in Colorado? New York Times journalist John Gertner has written a book that provides some answers. He calls it The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation. Inside that book, you can learn how radar came to be, and lasers, transistors, satellites, mobile phones, and much more. How on earth? Shelley Schlender spoke with Mr. Gertner about his new book. John Gertner, where are you? I'm in New Jersey today. I work in New York City, but uh, here at home in New Jersey. Well, you're in New Jersey. We're in Boulder, and we're communicating by phone. 100 years ago, could we do this? <laughs> no, we could not. I think the phone signal would die out somewhere around Chicago. It couldn't get any farther. But thanks to Bell Labs, they uh, created that first transcontinental link. In your book, The Idea Factory, you talk about all of the things we take for granted that didn't start out being that easy. Yeah, it really, everything with communications had to be invented, which can sound obvious today, but I mean, even the things like dial tones or hang-up hooks or um, busy signals, ringers, those were all things that had to be invented at the phone company. And as time progressed, uh, more and more things had to be invented. It seemed like any new invention created the need for other inventions. So uh, it kind of created this endless stream of problems and planning this phone system, this network that was constantly growing and constantly becoming more um, challenging to manage as traffic increased and the like. And it led to you know, more and more innovations, which um, the problems that needed to be solved, and they were largely solved by the people, the engineers and scientists working at Bell Labs. 
it was amazing to hear how mundane some of the problems were, like what kind of tree to use to make telephone poles. And we were delighted to find out that it was a tree that's near and dear to us, which is the lodgepole pine. Bell Labs actually had a couple of locations in New Jersey, and they had a facility in, in a town called Chester that just focused on solving problems relating to outdoor phone equipment. So they would get the best pine trees they could find and compare them, and they would put, like, fungicides and all sorts of, you know, creosote and covers on it, and then they would test them not just for, like, months but for decades sometimes and try and understand which would degrade the most or which were the most dependable. And they were doing the same kinds of things for wires and sheathing over the wires, all sorts of things. They were really building things to last, not for five or ten years, but the idea was to build it for 30 or 40 years. Your book was intriguing in terms of how you describe how they managed to make this kind of innovation environment where they could look 30 or 40 years ahead with what they were doing. And it's quite a bag of different details that made that possible, starting with the fact that Bell Labs was part of a monopoly. What, what the monopoly did for Bell Labs was... It created um, a steady stream of dollars by being connected to this huge nationwide phone company. They could hire a lot of people, hire the best people, have the best kinds of equipment. But it also did something incredibly valuable in that, one, it gave them an endless stream of practical problems that they were going to solve. I think we think of innovation as kind of people just having bright ideas, but a lot of times it's really just a response to solving um, problems that you're confronted with. And the other thing being attached to the phone company did was it gave them a very long time horizon. Uh, They could be assured that they didn't necessarily have to make quarterly results or hit a target for the end of the year. They could think very long term sometimes to 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years away. Not everybody at Bell Labs was doing that. There was a research department that was thinking very long term or, you know, trying to find new knowledge. And then there was a, a much larger systems department that was really looking nearer terms to solving these everyday problems. Interaction between the two was really quite vital, and it it really created a a very, you know, incredible, I guess you could say, environment or ecosystem for innovation, and uh, it really lasted decades that way. Well, John Gertner, your book, The Idea Factory, about Bell Labs, seems to focus a lot on what lessons can we learn from this amazing time of innovation. That includes what kind of people to draw into an innovative environment. And you have a high praise for small town, farm, and ranch guys. I do. I mean, in that era of who was coming to Bell Labs in the 1930s and 40s, for instance, a lot of these people, I mean, they weren't coming out of elite families, for instance. A lot of them were raised, I think, as I say in the book, at towns that were kind of intersections of nowhere and nowhere, and they'd be identified by a school teacher who just was struck by their sort of innate intelligence and would tutor them on their own sometimes and try and get them to go to a local college. And then from there, things would sort of take off for them. They might make it into Caltech or University of Chicago or MIT on the East Coast, and then their name would be passed along to the research directors at Bell Labs, and they could get hired. For instance, I think Charles Towns, who was one of the inventors of the laser, you know, said that you know, growing up on a farm, working with machinery, it really taught me to, to think you know, innovatively with what was around to build stuff, to understand you know, how things can get built. It's a very interesting lesson to learn. I don't think it's something we think about necessarily, but at the time, it, it gave these people coming to Bell Labs a kind of skill set that proved quite vital. 
they were tinkerers. They were problem solvers with any old thing. They were, although they might balk at the term tinkerers. <laughs> In some ways, what they saw themselves doing was very different from what, say, people in maybe Edis Thomas Edison's lab or a previous generation of engineers might have done. What they were doing was they were using scientific knowledge and applying it to problems in a way that wasn't random. They weren't just trying new materials and new devices kind of arbitrarily, say. Um, so I think they saw what they were doing, especially I know the people I focus on, uh, for instance, Mervyn Kelly, who was the director of research and one of the, the main drivers of innovation at Bell Labs, um, was very much interested in finding new knowledge and finding that new knowledge allowed you to do things in electronics, for instance, that's never possible just by tinkering. You know, one amazing detail that you share is how all of these brilliant, eccentric young men, when they came to Bell Labs, they were asked to sign a contract that said that any invention, any discovery they made would be Bell Labs. And in exchange, Bell Labs gave them each one crisp $1 bill. They signed away their patents. And at the time, these were really nobodies, but innovations that they came up with, the laser, the transistor, communication satellites, you have to wonder, my God, what would that patent be worth now? But they never saw it that way. They were not in it for the money. Um, in fact, you know, in this era before the Internet, before Silicon Valley, nobody could even conceive of the fact that you would become a millionaire, let alone a billionaire, by inventing some kind of technology. A lot of them were in it for the curiosity, for the adventure. And I should say, too, that the book, it's not really just a sort of description of the innovations. It's really very much a story of these people. I, and I focus on five or six in particular. And in some ways, innovation is about technology, but it's really also about the people and the personalities and that kind of interaction between people um, and what can lead to really new ideas. You describe very eloquently details such as how a transistor actually got invented and how it was not easy. And also you describe a building that was built so that all of these fascinating people who live very rich inner lives would run into each other and have to work together and learn from each other. The building, for instance, at Murray Hill, um, New Jersey, which is about 20 miles, um, 25 miles uh, west of New York City, uh, was carefully designed by the people who were running Bell Labs um, with long hallways and, and an in an era before cubicles, uh, an open-door policy. You weren't supposed to close your door. You were supposed to you know, welcome anyone who came to your lab and talk to them. If they had a question, You were, no matter how famous or accomplished you were, you were supposed to answer it. But it did. It did foster this interaction. And it wasn't just um, that you were hoping, that they were hoping, say, physicists would interact with other physicists, but that different people with different kinds of expertise um, and different sensibilities would interact um, in a way that they saw as the most fruitful way to foster new ideas, that chemists and metallurgists and experimentalists and theorists, that everybody would be talking to each other. It sounds maybe sort of obvious today, but at the time it was rather revolutionary. It was revolutionary in so many ways, and you do a good job of dividing it out into some of the pieces, such as discovery, invention, and innovation, and how there's different personalities that seem to fit with each one of those to make mm -hmm. it move forward. It was hard to write a book about innovation unless you kind of define it in a way. And I think to, to a certain extent, we sort of lump all innovation into 
into one big bin these days, but there are different kinds of innovation. And the kinds that came out of Bell Labs are sort of platform innovations, the stuff that allows other other innovations to be built upon, like transistors and integrated circuits and lasers and the like. But um, it's true that uh, discovery sort of precedes innovation a lot of times. At Bell Labs, they had a kind of specific um, explanation or, or definition of innovation. Innovation wasn't just um, invention. It wasn't just creating a new product or device. It was this whole process by which you used new knowledge to create a new product or process, and then you developed it over years and years and years, and you brought it to manufacture. So the whole innovative process required a lot of different kinds of people with different sorts of skills. As something would get handed off, for instance, to people who had certain kinds of expertise. Um, so, I mean, now I mean, we use the term a lot, like, oh, that's an innovative product or things like that. But at, at the time at Bell Labs, it had a very kind of uh, specific and important meaning, and, and innovation in itself was something, you know, quite specific and, um, and, and, and important. You know, and even though they were a monopoly, they were constantly spurred on by the terror that some other group at some obscure university would be able to figure out what they were doing or figure it out themselves and put a patent on it before Bell Labs did. And that seemed to have been a spur for their innovation and their inventions as well. I think so. I, I think um, that, you know, especially uh, with the transistor, which I, I think you're referring to also, they were wondering whether some scientists at Purdue had, had could beat them to it. Um, you know, at the same time, I think they didn't usually feel like they had competition, um, which is interesting because we tend to think now today that competition and innovation are really closely related, that, you know, if you're in a competitive business environment, you're going to innovate and innovate. But here was this kind of place that was part of a monopoly, so they didn't really have any business competition exactly. Um, they were the, the main attraction, and yet at the same time, they had this string of breakthroughs that came out of there. So it can definitely make you think a little deeper about the notion of how markets affect innovation to some extent, too. Well, you have so many interesting characters as part of this. Mervyn Kelly, who was the visionary about how to have a company work together. Uh, mm -hmm. Shockley, who was this egomaniac that wrecked the trust among the researchers in terms of sharing ideas but also did a great job in vetting the transistor. Claude Shannon, the brilliant, brilliant mathematician. Um, and then you say that you wonder if we really have had that great of people since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in particular, um, Bob Lucky, I think, had uh, one of the people I talked with for the book, who was a former Bell Labs executive, felt like these people were, I think he used the term, larger than life. Um, I mean, he said certainly Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and that kind of thing, but at the time he felt like these were... These were of a kind. Um, I, you know, it's a, it's a it's a good question. I, I I'm curious to hear what what people think after they read the book. Um, I, I think that you can read the book and and sort of realize too that uh, as much as we think we uh, are, are incredibly smart these days and how we go about technology, these were a group of people who were just remarkably ahead of their time. And, you know, eccentric, yes, but also so brilliant and far-thinking. And that's not to say that we don't have people like that today, but um, it is a reminder that even back then um, there were these people who, who just sort of stood head and shoulders above the others.
You know, John Gertner, I can't help but wondering if the distance of time helps us realize who were the giants, and we're too close to our present age to know. I, I think so. And in fact, you know, we talk about the transistor being this great invention that came out of Bell Labs, the most important one. But sometimes I wonder, too, I mean, the silicon solar cell came out of Bell Labs, too, the first really practical solar device. And I wonder if in 20 years, you know, we might think, huh, maybe the solar cell was as important as the transistor. We're not there yet, but as costs come down. So I think I think that's right. Um, at any given time, uh, the nature of what is important what we consider, you know, an innovation that makes the greatest impact or the person who makes the greatest impact, uh, that can change over time. And perhaps one person right now is having some obscure invention they're creating on a bench somewhere all by themselves, working hard day and night. And we'll know in 20, 30 years that that was a huge invention. I, I think that's right. I, I, I hope I hope we we have that person out there, <laughs> and uh, I think that's right. It takes sometimes it takes a very long time. Not so much in computer software, but but certainly in in, in energy, for instance, or biotechnology. Those are those are things that, that were really invention and development can take many many years. My my hope, having read this book, is that many people who are entrepreneurs will read it because it seems to be full of clues about how to put together a team how to work on an idea, how to not give up, how to be nimble. Mm -hmm. We still need those. I I think so. And I think it also maybe suggests, too, that there's not one way to innovate. At Bell Labs, there were different types and different um, um, ways to pursue ideas. Sometimes it was serendipitous. A couple people, like with the solar cell, that knew each other that got together to solve a particular problem. And sometimes with the transistor, for instance, it was a team that was very directed um, and, and was a, a mid-sized team that was um, um, sort of organized around this very sort of specific pursuit. Uh, and then, of course, there were other things like cellular telephone networks, which were just involving hundreds of people. So, yes, there, there are different lessons for, I think, different kinds of innovative products, projects. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully there's some value in, in, in reading that and, and sort of taking away some lessons. Well, thank you, and thank you for speaking to me on this old-fashioned device called the phone. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Shelley for that report. John Gertner's new book is called The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, and the show was engineered by me, Jim Pullen. Tom McKinnon produced today's show. Additional thanks to Shelley Schlender. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Neil Young. Can't listen to How on Earth on our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Jim Pullen.